Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It is my pleasure to be joined by Angie Peacock. She is one of the best withdrawal coaches in the space and um, really has a full and thriving practice. Uh, day in, day out, she sees people who are recovering from psychiatric drug harms and she's just doing great. We share a lot of the same clientele. And um, the one of the uh, really interesting things about Angie is that she's also recovered from her own story where she was on several medications and she has rebuilt her life since then. And that is the topic of what we're going to be discussing today. So Angie, delighted to have you here. Why don't you tell us about your experience with medications, uh, you know, from from start to finish, and we'll just go from there. All right. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So <laughs> my story starts in the U.S. military. I was in um, the Army for seven years. I had one deployment to Iraq, and um, there I was. I had lots of trauma back to back. Even before that, I had a. I was sexually assaulted in the Army, so that was like my first trauma. Um, basically, just all the trauma compacted. I also got physically ill while I was deployed. So then I thought I was going to die from either like getting shot at or die from this physical illness that I acquired. And uh, I sought help from psychiatry because that's what we're taught how to do. And I was immediately put on a benzo. Then I started getting worse. And then they started saying, this is your post-traumatic stress developing. Then it was more panic attacks. Then I got agoraphobia. And then it was, here's Paxil, here's metoprolol, you know, for your heart rate. It was just, it turned into, I started with just the benzo. And within two years, I was prescribed 18 medications at the same time. And it was like the worst polypharmacy nightmare. Um, I felt so out of my mind at the time. I remember thinking like, well, I think back now that, that that amount of medication, it took away my ability to even realize there was something wrong with being on 18 medications at the same time. Like I did not even think that was a problem, you know? So um, long story short, I found a psychiatrist maybe a year after that who took me off 10 overnight. And he was like, who put you on all this? We got to get you off of this. Can I ask you um, eight, eight, 18 meds? Sorry, did you say eight meds or 18? 18, or, 18. 18. Yeah. So we got Paxil, we got a benzo. Put like uh, antidepressant, Ambien for sleep, antipsychotic. I think it was like Abilify or Geodon at the time. Um, Lamictal, maybe a, a migraine medication, two opiates, opioids, um, one for st- something for my stomach, a beta blocker, uh, maybe even Boost Bar on top of it. It was, I think, what else? I think there was like some kind of steroid cream because I was having rashes, like ridiculous. Like, what am I even treating anymore? You know? Um, how, how, yeah. do, how does something like that happen? You know, just just walk like, how do you accumulate medications that quickly? Like, what what are the doctor's visits look like? What what, what was that whole experience getting? Well, I tried to read back through my records and it was, and I remember that period of time a little bit, but it was like, my first appointment was, hey, I just left Iraq. I'm traumatized. I can't adjust to Germany. Here's a benzo. Then it was, uh oh, I feel really anxious, like more anxious. Okay, here's a second benzo. Now I feel really depressed. Here's an antidepressant. Now I can't sleep. Here's, you know what I'm saying? So then it's, it's yeah. looking back, it's like, oh, they were just treating side effects, or I probably got into tolerance for the benzo within the first two weeks. And then what are we even treating anymore? Mm-hmm. Then, it, then I remember a trauma treatment program I went to. 
I, it was um, an inpatient program for four months in California, and I was really tearful. And so they said, you're crying too much. Here's Giadon. And I was like, but wait, am I, aren't I supposed to be crying because I'm trying to process trauma? So mm-hmm. it was just like everything about me was being pathologized and treated as if it was a mental illness symptom instead of could it be the and past? so and so these these i am i'm imagining and i mean i worked at the va i imagine that's where you were getting your health care so i mean are these kind of like you know your 15 minute med check type visits or well like- i mean some of them like i avoided the va when i got home because of the male aspect like i just i felt so traumatized like i didn't want to go to the va at all so i started out with civilian providers once i was out Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was just like each, I guess they call it legacy, excuse me, legacy prescribing where the new doctor would not take away anything the old doctor had prescribed. They would just keep adding to it. Mm. So then by and the it's, time and I it's got not like they, there, they had the time to, I, well, I feel like, like oftentimes it's just that, you know, they don't want to, like, it's a lot of time to go back through someone's medical record and kind of tease things apart. And that's just not, that's just kind of not, not how things yeah. are done in this more like kind of production line, you know, when you got like such a short amount of time with each person and then you go on to the next one. So that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And then I think my last stop though, was I had a civilian provider and she said, you're treatment resistant. And I, that was when I was on the 18 and I remember thinking really, I was really confused by that. Like, wait, I'm doing everything that you're telling me to do. What do you mean? I'm resistant. It's not working. But instead of saying it's the medication problem that she created, it was me. And that was at that point, she fired me, if that's even possible to fire a patient. And I went back to VA. And that's when that doctor said, who put you on all this stuff? We got to get you off some of it. Jesus. So, okay. But that was yeah, if, you, if you stayed with her, you're on, you know, I mean, you're on the path to ECT, you know, that, that's where treatment I've, I'd already been goes. asked. Yeah, I had yeah. been asked for that already. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, but then you eventually found one doctor who was just like, what the hell is going on? Um, yep. Yeah. Okay. And he, he took me off like. 10 overnight. And then the next eight years or so he would like taper me down one, but then like he'd add another and then I would get off of that one. And then he'd let me taper another one. So it was like, I was going down on everything. And I don't think I had it in my mind. Like I'm going to get off everything. Cause I was very invested. Like I thought I had a mental illness. I was behaving, you know what I mean? Like I all my whole life was revolving around therapist appointments, retreats, outpatient treatment. Everything was like, mental health treatment my whole life i was on disability i was living as a a disabled person i was completely invested i was always trying to help myself like what else can i do to get better but i didn't know that it was the meds like i just kept like you're spinning your wheels you know so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so we're gonna I'm going to come back to that, the whole, you know, the whole identity thing. I'm making a little note to talk about the identity of being a, uh, I guess, a psychiatric patient with a condition, but I, I want to hear the rest of this story. So, so you working with this person for 10 years, did they get you off meds completely or did you eventually need to move on to another provider to kind of finish it off? That provider moved to Ohio out of state. I was living in Missouri at the time. So then I got a new psychiatrist at VA and she put me on my second benzo. And at that time I had tapered off Cymbalta. It took me two and a half years to get off Cymbalta doing the bead method, licking my finger and counting all the beads. And then I was left with one benzo. She put me on a second benzo and looking back, she was treating my antidepressant withdrawal that I didn't know I was in. 
So then I was on two benzos. And then I remember feeling like this is dangerous. Like something doesn't feel right. I don't, I didn't know what it was at the time. It was just a little intuition. So I switched VA hospitals and I started driving an hour and a half to a new provider. And I was like, I'm on both of these and I don't want to be. Get me off. What do I do? And that was a, a brand new provider to me. That was our first appointment. And he said, who put you on two benzos? You shouldn't be on two benzos. And then I was like the last provider. So he said, well, pick one. So that was the day that I was cold turkeyed from two milligrams of clonopin and put on three milligrams of Ativan, which is backwards. Mm-hmm. He went from long acting to short acting. So then he managed that taper and he let me cut like 0.25 every six weeks or something. But that was not a hyperbolic taper. That was 0.25 of the original dose of three milligrams. So it was fine at the beginning. But then at a certain point, I hit a wall, which was when I hit to one milligram. And I guess I hit tolerance. I didn't know what was happening to me. I thought, oh, my God, now I really am mentally ill. Um, I think I have schizophrenia. I mean, it was severe. It was like severe suicidal thoughts, like visions in my head. I would get like these jolts in my body that felt like seizures, uh, vertigo, spinning in my living room, real bad diaphragm pain. I know you've heard that one before. Um and then he said, you have agitated depression. Let's put you on lithium. And I was like, no, like everything in my body screamed. I was like, no, there's no way. And that's when I started getting really disillusioned with the system. It took something that severe where it like just pretty quickly, I started opening my eyes like, wait a minute, something is off. And it happened where he gave me a new therapist. The therapist asked me a bunch of questions, gave me some questionnaire and I and it says you have generalized this anxiety disorder now. And I was like, okay, I have agitated depression, PTSD, panic disorder, agoraphobia. Like, who gives a shit? Like, I was so frustrated with that. Like, okay, another diagnosis. Like, you guys aren't helping me here. Then I got suicidal because of the tolerance. I went to the hospital. They greeted me with a police officer and a plastic wheelchair. Two police officers and a plastic wheelchair. I was there voluntarily. I was extremely peaceful. Um, and then I just was like, what is going on here? Like, I don't understand I'm here. You know what I mean? So it was just like all these things started happening that was like with unraveling my belief in the system, I guess, you know? And the interesting thing is like, okay, so did, did you, and, and when you hit that wall from the clonopin, were you aware that, you know, you were tapering too fast and that it was no idea. Okay. But you. But you'd known enough that you needed to do the the beads on Symbolta. So you you'd kind of slightly entered that world, right? Um, yeah, but I never I never visited a forum. I had a bachelor's of science in psychology from Washington University in St. Louis, yeah. which is a med school. I had no idea that withdrawal was a thing. The only thing I knew at that time was Cymbalta was hard to get off. I just had to go slower and I was fine. I didn't know okay. that there was like withdrawal syndromes and it could last months or years. I had no idea. Okay. And Okay. So tell me what happened next. So, so it sounds oh, yeah. like you got, so, you got, you got sectioned and you got sent to the yeah. psych hospital. Yeah. I was in the psych ward. The resident came in and he said, okay, we're going to take you down from one milligram today. Tomorrow you get 0.25 at noon and 0.25 at three. And then that'll be your last dose. And I was, I know. And I was like, yeah. uh, okay, so what withdrawal can I expect? Cause I did, I did at least know, I didn't know it was like, there's something called, I didn't even know I was intolerant. I had no concept of that, but I did know like, this is a drug and you're stopping it. So there was probably a withdrawal. And then he said, oh, you might hear voices and they might say your name. That's literally what he said to me. 
And I was like, oh my God. So I sat there in the hospital playing with puzzles for five days, like listening, like, am I hearing anything? No, I'm not hearing anything. So then on day five, they discharged me. I drove home thinking I was very cautiously optimistic, like, okay, cool. I don't have any drugs in my system. However, like I said, that wasn't like my overall goal. That's just how it happened, you know? And I stopped at Starbucks on my way home. I got a little coffee. I was like, they thought I was addicted. I wasn't, you know, that's what I was thinking. Cause this is an addiction. Cause I knew I, you know, I didn't run out early or anything. And then the very next morning I woke up with extreme fear of being alone. I felt like I was going to lose my mind and nobody would help me out of it. I had tingling like in my legs and then I had hypersensitivity of all my senses. So I put a piece of pizza in my mouth and I tasted the salt that was in the sausage and the cream and the cheese and the tomatoey, like everything was hyper, everything. And then I called a friend and I was like, something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but I'm scared. I'm going to lose my mind. And so she, I went to her house and she's like, honey, we're all a little crazy. You'll be fine. You're the strongest person I know. You can get through this. You know, she's really nice. And then the next day got worse. And then the next day got worse. And it just like was building slowly. And then it was like, I mean, boom, it hit me like a freight train. I stopped speaking. I could not walk to the bathroom without holding on to both of the walls. I couldn't eat. She was like force feeding me broth. Uh, I remember we went to Walgreens or something to get a bunch of supplements because I just didn't know what was happening. And then at that point is when I Googled benzo withdrawal and I found Dr. Jen Lee, um, one of her articles on Huffington Post. And then that led to Benzo Buddies. And I went to Benzo Buddies and I was like, oh my God, this is what's happening to me. This is what they missed. I was intolerance. And then I, I remember my first post, I think on Benzo Buddies was something like, I have to start school. The spring semester starts in two weeks. Am I going to be okay? Oh God, I can't imagine the um, responses senior, you got on that. This is yeah. my senior year, my senior year of college. Um, almost yeah. done. Yeah. yeah. There yeah. you go. That's what happened. Okay. And so tell me a little bit about your journey with, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of call it like the red pill moment. You know, I went through a different one as a healthcare professional. It's, it's, it's different when you're a patient and, you know, you, you're listening to your doctors, you, you're listening to their diagnosis, you're taking their meds as prescribed and you're following it. But then you reach that point where you realize, I think, you know, I've heard you say this, like the three O shits, you know, to, to, and um, maybe you could tell us about the yeah, three O shits that, that, that people go through and what that was like for you. Yeah. yeah I, I started noticing this with coaching yeah. people and I, and I had my own. So the first O shit is, Oh shit, these drugs are giving me a problem and I need to, I need to get off of them somehow. The second one is I need to get off, but my doctor has no clue how to get me off and they're probably going to hurt me somehow giving me more. I'm going to have to do this by myself. The third one is it's going to be me and my suffering up against the wall. And there's no pill. There's no doctor. There's no program. There's no expert. There's no amount of money that can buy me out of this experience. I have to go through it. There's no, there's nothing else. It's me and my suffering in a bedroom. And you've been led astray for like years as well, you know, and then it's just like, yeah. So, 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 so that, what, what is then it I like? Just, I just, yeah, yeah, I just added a recent, a fourth oh shit moment. And that's like, after you're off and you're through the experience, then you still have life happening. Like my dog yeah. died, my grandmother gets sick. Then like, how am I going to deal with this without like mental health help? You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 
So you, you, you end up in this position and then I, I guess I imagine you're looking back at like your diagnoses all the way back to, you know, your first PTSD diagnosis and, and you're realizing that I guess I've just, you know, everyone has kind of missed what's been going on with me. You know, they've, I mean, at that point I would just feel like I had been poisoned for several years, you know, and that I'd lost yeah. years of my life, you know, essentially being in some kind of drug haze um, and, you also have all of these beliefs as well where it's like, I mean, maybe you did think you had treatment resistant depression or severe depression or bipolar or kind of something like that. I imagine all of those things were kind of thrown around with the medications. And yep. and so w- what was it like kind of coming out of that, 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 that identity of being the sick patient with all of these conditions that needed these treatments to, I guess, realizing that, you know, these people had actually no idea what they were doing and like, yeah. Like what the hell just happened? (laughs) Tell us about that. I think it, so when that happened to me, you know, I'm six days off of cold turkey after 13 years of medication. And to top it off, I mean, I have the list on my phone. There was more than 40 drugs in 13 years, but it wasn't all psych drugs. Like most of them were, I mean, I ran through like six antipsychotics, like 10 antidepressants, you know, four benzos. Like I went through all of them, but so I'm finally off of everything. And then it's like, you can't read and digest fast enough. You have to learn all this stuff very quickly. Like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I take? You know, what can help me? Does these coping skills help? What, what am I going to do here? You know, so I was trying to read, but at the same time, like, you know, that first month off, I'm literally like, I guess they would call it catatonia. Like I could not read. I couldn't look at faces on Facebook. I couldn't speak. I mean, it was just, my brain was just obliterated but I'm trying, I'm trying to read as much as I can and digest. So at that point is when I found anatomy and up an epidemic. I found Madden America somehow. Everybody says that book. That's the one for me as well. Yeah. Everybody, but I yeah. couldn't read. So I was listening yeah. to the audiobook, and I might've been three or four months off by then, but I was listening to the audiobook, and there was just this moment. I'll never forget it. I was in my living room and I was actually like walking from the couch to the bathroom and it was like a lightning bolt. Like Angie, you were never mentally ill to begin with. And I mean, it mm-hmm. just hit me like I just felt so betrayed in that moment. Like, wait a minute. I had traumas and I react to the trauma. That was it. That was normal. That should never have been medicated in the first place. You know what I mean? And then it was, but the meds fucked you up like bad. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then I still feel I and this seven and a half years off now, I still feel like betrayed by that whole thing like i lost 13 years of life i lost having kids getting married relationships i didn't date that whole entire time i didn't have friends i didn't go out i my life turned into like me i don't even know what i did honestly like i'm like what did i do with my disability money i don't even know i don't remember half of it it's like Mm -hmm. a a a haze you know i lost my sexuality my femininity i didn't i didn't shower half the time i didn't brush my teeth like all kinds of stuff but they kept saying mm-hmm. that's your that's your mental illness. Yeah. No, it was a bunch of side effects and adverse events and polypharmacy and withdrawal and then being covered with something else the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So how, so coming coming back to the original topic now, I think this is a great place. How do you rebuild? You know, after you go through something like that, and then you have your I'll just call it the anatomy of an epidemic uh, moment because that's what it that's is. That's what for it so is for people. everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What um, how, how do you rebuild your life after after getting getting to that point? 
All right. So part of my rebuilding, I think, had a lot to do with the film Medicaid Normal. And I'm so grateful that they found me. It was a double-edged sword. So when I was like eight months off, mm. I saw this ad go around that says we're filming a documentary about medication withdrawal, blah, blah, blah. And I totally ignored it. I was like, I don't want to be in the documentary. I had already been in four, four other documentaries. I was, I'm a spokesperson for Wounded Warrior Project. Like I've had cameras around me for like 10 years. I don't want no cameras watching me do this. Like, I don't even know if I'm going to make it, but they talked me into it somehow. And, um, I remember when the filmmaker came to my house, she talked me into it and I closed the door when she got out to go back to her hotel. And I thought, okay, well, I can't kill myself because now I'm in a movie and I don't want them to say all these wonderful things about me. Here's some footage of Angie, but Jen, she died by suicide at the end. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I was like, no, I can't, I can't do that. So that kept me going because it was like, they would come back every six months to film something. So in a way it was like, I got to make it to the next you know, appointment. And every time they would come, they would tell me, you know, we interviewed Alan Francis, we interviewed Peter Gercha, we interviewed Bob Whitaker, and this is what they said about it. And we asked them questions for you. Yes, you're going to get better. You're going to be fine. So um, that kept me going. And then I was really involved with the film. I ran the outreach. So I developed the YouTube channel. I started posting all the videos. I did all the social media posts. I started scheduling screenings. And at the same time, I don't know how I did this to this day, but I graduated from college with my social work degree. My lease was up, the film was coming out and I started feeling a little better. And I was about four years off and I was like, I think I should get in an RV and travel with the film and start showing it in in cities. So in a way I took all that anger and all that grief and all that upset about what they did to me. And I kind of like funneled it into that. And I was like, if I can talk about this, with lots of people over and over and I can bring some awareness and I can help people in the meantime, that's going to help me. I think that's just how I'm wired. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that. And then I started just slowly exploring, like, what do you even like? Like, I didn't even know who I, I didn't even know what I like. Like, what food do you like? Where do you like to go? What, what, what do you like to wear? Like that wasn't even a thought when I was on all those meds, you know? So I just started doing those things, like going to national parks, going to the beach. Let's try vintage shopping. Let's try on dresses. You know, I just started experimenting with all these things. And then I just feel like it slowly, slowly rebuilt a sense of self and a a new identity off meds. That was kind of my process. Yeah, I mean, the the thing about finding meaning, you know, has popped up in like a lot of different stories you know, especially when I talk to, you know, other coaches, you know, finding something that's greater than yourself. And I mean, it doesn't need to be completely related to, you know, drug harms or anything like that. It can be something like, you know, even in my patients, like, oh, you know, I I need to get better because, you know, my husband's 20 years older than me and he's going to need someone to look after him soon. Like whatever you can grab onto as, as the, the thing that you've, that makes you hang in there seems to be something that's very predictive of success and making it through it. Um, um, the interesting thing is that you felt like you didn't have like an identity. Did did you feel like, because I I, I imagine before you, you got into this mess, you probably, did you feel like you had a pretty, like an identity back then? And then, so, so what, what had changed between, you know, Angie pre-med, pre being medicated to like how you felt like identity wise, like when, when you came off, like had it just been so long that you'd been in this haze, you'd kind of forgotten what, like what, tell us about that. I mean, I felt like 
I felt like I knew that I was really good at my job. I was really smart. I was with it. I was very hardworking. I usually would catch on to things. I, I always had this like sense of um, like, if you tell me I can't do something, watch me. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like I have spite in me a lot. So that fueled me to get through it because I was like, no way am I going to kill myself. Like I took it off the table at a certain point. I'm not going to say it, it wasn't a constant thought. I had suicidal um, ideation really severe for three years. But um, I kept thinking, like, I can't do it because if I do it, they win. If I do it, they'll be right about me. If I do it, they're going to talk and say, oh, we tried to help Angie, but she was just a dysfunctional veteran with PTSD. That's what they do. They kill themselves. You know, I didn't want that narrative. So that grit, like, really stayed with me. Like, you know, you have to do this. You have to do this no matter how bad it gets. Like, if you have to stand on your head. So, like, that part stayed with me and has, has come back in a lot of ways, like, more pure like, I'm going to help people. I can't just look away and just walk away from this problem and act like I don't know that it happens. I'm watching hundreds of people do it. That's how I am. That's the true me. Like, I see a problem. I try to help it somehow, you know? So that part came back, you know, a little bit of my femininity. It's even, it's still unfolding, I would say, in a lot of ways. But like, the truest part of me, the loving, the empathy, the, um, I would do anything for anybody. I would take the shirt off my back for somebody. You know, that part of me has emerged, but it, it's almost like I was there the whole time, but the injury had to clear and then the health reveals itself, you know. How do you, how do you, I know you, so you've had your own personal experience kind of coming back and creating and, you know, finding a new identity and purpose and something that drives you. Um you know, it's one thing going through it on your own. It's another thing teaching it to other people who are in states of crises. How do you go about doing that? It's hard, man. It's so, you know, it's so hard. Um, but you, you, you pointed to one of them. The first thing I do when I talk to people, first of all, I'd never work with someone that's like convinced they need meds or they are married to their label. I might share information, but it's like, it's not my job to convince you of what your experience is. You know, I let them come to it themselves, but usually they find me, they know. So then I start talking about like, why are you doing this? Why do you want to get off meds? Because I got to know that like when things get hard for you, so I can pull on that and you got to know why you're doing this. And most of the time people say like, I want to feel healthy. I don't even know what, I don't know what my emotions are. I lost my sense of identity. I don't know who I am anymore. I want to feel things or I want to get off before I'm 60 because I'm worried about dementia. Like there's there's many different reasons. So we talk about that. We talk about like, who do you want to be when this is over? Who were you beforehand? And then a lot of it is like present moment, like living in the moment. So many clients, you know, this, they're like, what's going to happen if I do my next cut or what's going to happen in six months? Or I can't do this for seven years. Angie, you took six years to feel like a human being. I can't do that. And I'm like, I didn't do it like that. I did it like, Literally, how do I make it in the next five minutes? And I would tell myself, I can do anything for five minutes. I can do anything for five minutes. So it's really like keeping that, I call it the healing mindset. I'm not telling you to paint pink on in this. This is not toxic positivity. It's like people heal from these injuries. They do. That's certain. As -hmm. long as you don't hurt yourself or try to stay away from other meds and things. Um, And really until then you just have to try to, you know, eat as clean as you can. I don't, I'm not a subscriber of any specific diet. Just don't eat a lot of crap. Try to move a little bit, have people that are supportive around you, even if that's an online community. And a lot of this is just time. You just got to get the time passed and just stay as focused as you can in like this present moment. 
that's all we got anyway, you know? So that's how I got through it. And that's really just try to the point that I try to keep people in, you know? Yeah, I guess, I'm, I mean, yeah, getting things in the right order, I think is, you know, like you said, I mean, I guess there's no rebuilding your life until you've healed to a point where you're not in constant panic and, and, and feeling suicidal. And so yeah. main priority up until then is, is, you know, don't kill yourself, you know, like no, uh, f- find a way to kind of get through each day. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a lot of like the mindset things, you know, uh, you know, who do you want to be? Why do you want to make, th- make it through this? You know, the, the meaning, you know, like I mentioned, you know, I want to be there to look after my husband when they're older, but yeah. how do you, how do you coach people into like dealing with things like akathisia? You know, what, what are some of the, because, because, cause that's not really like a mental thing, you know, like, no. like what, what are some of the, I don't know if there's any like kind of exercises or techniques or, or ways that you try and help people kind of soothe themselves. Obviously it doesn't work for everyone all the time, but I'm always interested in, in, in learning about the different techniques the coaches employ. I mean, for those, the, yeah. even akathisia, it's really like they are, I probably have six cases of akathisia right now. And I've seen each one of them differ, deal with it differently. Sometimes it is, it is just hysteria and they're pacing around their bedroom and they'll text me and say, Angie, I walked nine miles today. I don't even know what happened. You know what I mean? I, it's like, to me, it's the most cruel, inhumane suffering anyone can endure. I didn't have the pacing part, but I had all the other symptoms, the suicidal, suicidal, like intense feeling of electricity through my body. And for me, I mean, I, I was doing things like counting my heartbeats. Like I would literally just lay there and I, I caught like a Jedi mind trick or something like you just force it's a force, like you're forcing all your thinking just to focus on the heartbeat and you might get one second of relief, that's it, or one second of distraction and then you just keep doing it. Um, there's no affirmations at work. There's no positive thinking. It's literally enduring suffering and the next day could be better. I could get a break in two hours. I could get a break in three hours. It is kind of a mind game. It's not necessarily like something that you can do to fix it. I even have clients that say like, I'm doing all this stupid guided meditation and tapping and uh, none of it works. And I'm like, look, we're not looking for a sledgehammer. This is not ambient. This is not going to be a benzo. This is like a distraction for your mind for five seconds that maybe gives you 1% of relief. And if that is all you're going to get and that sustains your life, that's all I care about, you know? So it's really like second by second, how do I get through the next hour and most of it is just you're suffering the whole time. And that's what I mean. Like I, I sometimes think like, what am I? Am I a coach? Am I a mentor? Am I a peer counselor? Like, what do I call this? And I'm like, I feel like I just teach people how to suffer because it's it's just suffering. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you can do. There's no pill that's going to take it away. And you just have to endure it until one day it's going to break. That could be in an hour. That could be t- tomorrow. That could be next week. I don't know when. But I mean, that's pretty much what everybody comes to. It's, it's, it sucks. Cause like right now I know you're trying to, you're working with a few patients where they're working with fentanyl or morphine to just give them a, a relief, you know? And sometimes there's like little windows that come for the akathisia patients, like 10 minutes or five minutes or 20 minutes. And I say, it's like, you're, you're uh, drowning underwater and that's what akathisia is. And you're going to come up for air every, you know, here could be tomorrow could be, you know, and then you could get dunked right back under. Yeah, that's the truth of it. Um, and 
you know, you mentioned, mentioned the fentanyl and the morphine and, you know, that's not a decision that I take lightly at all. I mean, it's, I mean, we're, we're essentially talking about giving you another drug dependence when we get to that point. So it's really like, are you suicidal or, or, I mean, the one case, and I haven't done this a lot, but the, the, the main one I can think of was the gentleman who had akathisia so bad, he was just wasting away in front of me. I mean, he, looked like a skeleton because he wasn't eating anything. And eventually I was just like, there's no way you're going to heal if you can't get nutrition into your body. So fentanyl it is, you know, um, yeah. but well, it's, it's fentanyl or suicide. I mean, you know, I, I know the groups don't like to discuss other drugs. And I mean, that's the other thing about groups. Like when you're sitting on zoom with someone and you hear their whole history and you see their parents in the background and you talk to them about their beliefs or their feelings around what they have, it's different than like a comment on Facebook. You know what I mean? Like you get the full picture of the person and for somebody who cannot handle it, like they're going to kill themselves. You can't tell them in a group, don't take anything necessarily. Obviously we don't want to take antidepressants and antipsychotics and stuff because there's that hypersensitive state that they're in. But I understand where you're coming from with the fentanyl. And the yeah. So it's super unique, right? You know, and, and I think there's a tendency, um, yeah, you know, to, to, I mean, you go through it and so you imagine that maybe someone suffering is the same nature as yours. But I think having dealt with this, it, it you know comes in all different flavors and you know, sometimes that suffering may be the same, but maybe you have a better support system whereas someone else is is crumbling. And you know, the you know, if you keep on you know, they just cannot endure it without their support system breaking and, you know, or their wife leaving them and taking the children and because, yeah. you know, it's just not working anymore and then you know, they're stuck in a house without any kids. And, you know, that's it's like a step away from like a suicide attempt at that point. Yes. Um, and so it, that's the, that's the hard thing, you know, it's, and you know, this cause you're a coach, so you kind of Watch like, every you, take, day. You, you, you take all comers and I take all comers as well. So, you know, it's, oh. you, you, you just have to kind of reflexively kind of deal with it and kind of feel your way through it in the dark, which is yeah. kind of how I feel. Um, but I, w I wanted to ask you because you, you you know you mentioned this is going to seem like a big segue, but I, I highlighted it here because I because I think it's interesting the diaphragm pain. To me, um, you know, you, it's a marker for that. akathisia. I swear. Yeah, yeah. So what what we're talking about is the fact that a lot of people with these benzo injuries they kind of complain about these this this tearing pain that occurs under the diaphragm. I've never heard of it with any other medical condition that kind of nature of the pain. Um, it's like yeah. And so to me, that that's, seems to be a really unique symptom of, of, of these benzo drug injuries. I was wondering um, what else sticks out to you, Angie? I mean, are there any other symptoms that's, that stick out to you that, that you just go, mm -hmm. you know, that's really bizarre, you know? Um, well, I did notice this thing because I've seen, okay, in one year I've had 1,000 sessions those are paid sessions. Like some are 30 minutes, some are an hour, whatever, but it's a thousand, you know, it's a thousand different moments where I have to collect data and see patterns. And a pattern that I've noticed is to me, akathisia is definitely a spectrum. So some people can pace, some people don't, some people can't cope with the feeling in their body and they pace. Some of it is physical and they can't stop, but then there's always this thought pattern. So I will always ask people, just from my own information, like, okay, you feel the sense of energy in your body. They feel like they're full of energy and they could just pop open. Their skin could rip off. They always speak in metaphor. And then I'll ask them like, what's the nature of your thoughts? And sometimes they'll say, oh, I'm just doom and gloom. 
but I know when it's danger. Like I have clients that they'll keep looking behind them and I'll say, you know, stop looking at the window. Cause I know, cause I've had it, your brain, like it tells you to like, it's an urge thing. You know what I mean? And to me, that's the severe end of akathisia. They're homicidal, suicidal images, urges. Some of the milder cases, they have the energy, they have the diaphragm pain, but they don't have the thoughts involved. So that's kind of where I put it on like a spectrum, what I've seen. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, interesting stuff. Um, Angie, I don't know if you, are you still traveling around the country or yes. are you kind of, yes. okay, yeah. Yep. I actually stop and see survivors. I do in-person yeah. visits sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I sit at the kitchen table with people. And me and you were talking about this before we recorded, yeah. but it's sometimes I'm like, should I be doing this? Am I getting in trouble? And I'm like, who's going to help these patients? Who? Who? Yeah. So I'm sitting on somebody's kitchen table and they have all their supplements spread out and we're drawn up tapering. Like, this is how people taper. You know, I never tell anybody what to do, but I'm like, I literally sit there and explain it to them like step by step because they're cognitively, they can't even figure it out. You know, and then yeah, that's, say, the, that's the worst thing about this. I mean, that thought came to me as well. Right at the moment where you start suspecting that your doctor doesn't know what they're talking about and you go, oh, you know, he's off, something is seriously wrong. And then you start yeah, going into that hole where you find anatomy of an epidemic and other things. I mean, it, it's typically at the point where like you're at the peak of cognitive disability and you cannot do those things. Like, figure it out. You're like, a hyperbolic taper, what, you know? trying to do like math and calculations to no. kind of say, yeah. do this. Also being able to talk to your doctor who's not informed on withdrawal, like in a, in a calm way where they're going to be receptive to it. I mean, all of these things are just like, is like mountains to climb. They're so challenging with the level of cognitive disability that people have in the moment. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I, I often talk to family members, the call before this with you, I was with a mom and a daughter and I was explaining to the daughter I, and I told her ahead of time, like, look, I'm not a doctor. I'm somebody who had to taper myself. I'm just helping your mom get information. This is how people do it. You guys have to figure it out. And she was there and I was coaching her through it. I explained a hyperbolic taper. I explained like, you don't want to stair step necessarily. Your mom's already got symptoms. She's really sick. Um, often I'll pull up and I'll share my screen and I show them what a hyperbolic taper looks like. And they're like, oh, I can understand that. Like, I'm just going to go slow, you know, but yeah, these the cognitive, especially when they're older, especially like I have clients in their 70s that are in ambient withdrawal. It's I can't oh. believe it. Yeah, yeah, like 69, 72. They're texting me things like, Angie, I didn't sleep the last two nights. And then I'll say to them, well, did you go look in the groups? Because I want you to know that other people, this is a really bad symptom. But even then they're kind of confused about like, do I need to go to the doctor now? Like, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And so they're cognitively affected in withdrawal because they're older. I'm glad you brought up insomnia because this to me is one of the most challenging things to treat. And, and most of the time I just say, I, I don't know. Um, apart from, obviously there's cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia where you, you tell people to cut out caffeine, nicotine, if they're still doing that, you know, have a nice bedtime r routine, try some meditation. But I don't know if you have any insights um, into how you help people cope with insomnia during these uh protracted withdrawal periods. I, I made a video on my YouTube channel about it, but it's basically like you have to not care that you're not going to sleep because guess what? You're not. Yeah. You're just not like, like I, I mean, and that's easy for me to say, but I think it's very involved with like the neuro emotion. So people that are listening that don't know what I mean, it's like 
your emotions, your fear center is going crazy. Everything is worst case scenario, catastrophic. I'm going to die. I can't do this. This is permanent, Angie. You don't understand. I'm different in some way. So they people have all these loops. And so I always help them too. I'll say like, I think this is your loop. Like you have the sleep loop. I'm not going to die. I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to have to go in a psych ward. I'm going to kill myself. And it's like, they loop about that over and over and over and over. Um, But it's really like, you're not going to sleep and there's nothing to take and there's nothing to do. Some people I see take melatonin here and there. Some people take magnesium, but then some people are harmed by it. You know, Um, it's that suffering thing again. Like I'm just not going to sleep. There's nothing to do about it. I have to kind of lay there and take it. And even when I say that, I feel like it's cruel, but like, how can we like, first of all, you're on a drug that affects the nervous system of it. Sleep is going to be the first thing to go. So then to treat that with another drug is insane. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. like what's left sleep hygiene doesn't work. Um, The only thing that I've seen work for some people a little bit is in the morning, you got to crack the window and let the sunlight in or go sit outside, especially in that morning hours, like eight to 11, get some sunlight in the eyes, but that doesn't really work, you know, but I'd say 90% of my clients do not sleep more than like two to three hours a night, especially that first year. It's just part of the process. It's just time, right? You know, you just, yeah. Just get through the night. Yeah. Um, well, that's the truth there. So, you know, Angie, I, I don't have any more questions at this time. Is is, is there anything that that um, that you wanted to speak through? Any anything kind of interesting, or or may, you know, maybe on the topic of you know recovery? I mean, I think there is. I think I want to talk about hope. Like in a lot of ways, I'm a better person, a better version of myself now. I don't think I should have ever gone through this experience. I never wished on my worst enemy. It was the worst suffering. It to me, it was worse than combat. It was worse than sexual assault. I've been through lots of trauma, homeless. I've been I've had so much in my life. A lot of it because of meds, you know. But um in a lot of ways, life is good now. And because I had to live in the present moment so long and just fight for everything, when you get to this side, it's like I'm just like, I live more deeply than I ever have. You know what I mean? I feel like just last night we had a dinner party and I got to talk to these people from all over the world. And I was just like, it's just like, I'm in awe and wonder, you know, I enjoy life. Um, Not to say like, I don't remember, I remember how bad it was, but it's left me. I don't feel it anymore. I can talk about it all day. I get to watch people heal all day. I feel like that's a sacred gift for me. Like I get to see people from month to month, like, wow, look what you don't talk about that symptom anymore. Um, so I just, I just guess I got to say like, this should have never happened to any of us, but it did. It's not fair. It's, it's terrible. Hopefully one day this stops happening. I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime, but damn it. I'm going to help the people get to the other side if I can, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I think your story is a great one because it's like you said, you know, you've recovered and that's the trajectory and that's what everyone says, you know, that there's, You know, you may not heal all the way, but by God, you'll get to a point where your life is meaningful um, and um, enjoyable. Well, you know, Angie, on that note, I, I'm I'm going to hit stop on the recording, but thank you so much for allowing me to do this with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. 
Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.